Well, as Jason said, we come expecting to hear from God tonight. I think we already have. <laughs> um, it's amazing to sing about the grace of God. And um, when Jeff asked me to to come and speak to you tonight and fill in for him, um, passage was laid on my heart that I've been studying recently, and that's passage found in John chapter 8. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll get there in a minute. Um, I have to say, though, it's, it's been a, it's been a, for those of you that walked in late, my name is James Patterson. I'm a singles pastor here, and, and um, I feel privileged to be able to stand before you tonight. Uh, I've gotten the opportunity. Uh, I speak here on Thursday nights to singles, and I teach on Sunday mornings, and I've had a couple of opportunities to speak on a Sunday morning main stage for all the services. Um, and, and that's been the most amazing experience, but there's like another tier that nobody knows about. And that's being able to speak at the mine. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that like, there's a whole like different underworld here that like, it's so funny because people that I've talked to on staff be like, Hey, uh, you're, you're teaching the mine. And I was like, yeah, I need to be scared. Don't I? <laughs> It was amazing because it's such a privilege because everybody esteems Jeff. He's just, he's, I, I tease him all the time that he's got the Bible memorized and he needs to quit showing us up. But um, he, uh, he and, and Lisa are, are, are the first two people, actually, when my wife and I came on an interview weekend last, uh, last spring, almost summer, uh, to, to try and figure out if this is where God would want us. And they were the first two that we met with and uh, fell in love with them immediately. And so it's, it's a privilege, it's an honor to be able to stand before you here tonight. Like I said, we're going to be talking in the book of John. We're taking a week off of Judges. I asked him if he wants me to keep going at Judges. I'd love it. Uh, and he said, I don't even know where I'm going to land and I wouldn't want to weigh that on you. And I just don't think he wanted me to mess it up. So uh, he's going to be live <laughs> next week and, uh, and continue in Judges. But today we're going to jump forward to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Now, most of you realize this already. There are four, obviously, four Gospels. And there are four accounts of the lives of, life of Christ. And this room, as much as any, if we're going to examine a, a portion of Scripture, I just want to qualify it for a minute, uh, because there's three, the three most important word we, words we can remember when uh, analyzing the Scripture is context, context, and context. Uh, and so tonight, I just want to, just briefly, so we get there, um, understand why John wrote what he wrote and who he wrote it to, so that we understand when we read his words, uh, what he said. Uh, basically... Um, Matthew, as we know, Matthew was, uh, it was a book, it's basically a Jewish gospel, and it was presented to the Jewish uh, culture from a Jew, and, and he wrote the story of Christ, and he talked about things like that it might be fulfilled, and it is written, and he's, he's trying to point that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we have Mark, and Mark presents the great servant prophet. He's, he's written to more of a Roman Gentile group. He, he writes to the Jews as well, but it's got more of a, more of a, a Roman Gentile, almost a secular kind of feel to it of, of hey, this is, this is the servant, the person of Jesus Christ. And then Luke, we know Luke, he wrote his uh, as almost a chapter two uh, to, um, or, excuse well, there were my notes, we're in trouble now. Um, he, he wrote this one and then he wrote Acts as a chapter two uh, to a friend of his named Theophilus. And we, when we read his book, and we read his accounting, we, we, we get, we, there's a lot of pictures of Christ as this kind of table talk. You, you see him around the table a lot, and he's very personal. And so he's trying to point to the, to the person of Jesus Christ um, as, the, as the man of God. 
And then we get to John. Now, John was probably the last gospel that was written. Uh, most scholars believe, there's always debate among scholars, but most scholars, the majority of scholars, believe that it was written about 50 or 60 years uh, after church history, New Testament church history had started, probably in about 90 AD. And so John has had the opportunity to trace back all of these events of Christ's life. Um, he, uh, I read, read one commentary that says this, that John wrote for the world, uh, living as he did at the end of 50 years of church history, knowing that the gospel had already permeated the entire Mediterranean world. John carefully selected his material and unashamedly targeted unbelievers. So, and then if you go into John's gospel himself in chapter 20, he says this. He tells us why he wrote his gospel, his accounting of Christ's life. Chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, I'll read this to you. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's why John wrote. John wrote that we might know who Christ is as a person. John wrote to the world. He didn't have a target audience. His target audience was everybody that doesn't know Jesus. And he said, I'm going to encapsulate Christ's life. Not going to tell you everything he ever did. There's no reason for it. Let me tell you why you need to know certain things about what happened to him. Now, the, the scriptures that we talk about tonight actually begin in chapter 7, the last verse, 53. And go through 8, chapter 8, verse 11. Now, this is a, an interesting passage of scripture. Uh, and so let me qualify this. This is not in all of the ancient manuscripts. This is a section of scripture that some scholars actually believe was inserted uh, by, a, by one of the scribes that some people even speculate John didn't even write it. Um, those that do speculate John wrote it and do a critical analysis of his writing style say that it doesn't really fit here, that it more fits uh, at the end of his gospel kind of as a postscript. Like we think that John wrote this. It's similar, but it really doesn't flow with some of the things. And, and so if we're going to put it with John's gospel, we're going to put it at the end. There's even a set of scriptures, or excuse me, a set of scholars that put this in Luke about chapter 18 or so, right as, right as when Jesus is, is walking around, he's doing some of his last teachings in the temple. They don't even ascribe it to John. And in fact, one last thing, there are, like I said, there's a lot of manuscripts, the most ancient ones. In fact, some of your Bibles will be subtexted to say the most ancient manuscripts don't include this. The most reliable don't have this accounting. There are, though some manuscripts that have been found that although they don't have this story, there is a noticeable gap on the page. There's a blank piece of paper there on the parchment that they think that the scribes intentionally, hey, you know what, there's another piece of information here, but we're just not going to include it. And so although we don't know because we're not there, the large majority of the evangelical world has adopted that this, although it might not fit here, this is gospel truth. It is something that Jesus did. It's an experience that he had. It is an interaction with people in real life situations. And so we need to make sure it's in here. So we could argue to we're blue in the face about where it belongs and who authored it. We're going to take it as it's worth, as it's most of your scriptures, as it's found here in chapter 7, verse 53 through uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So what I want to do is I want to start out and I want to read all of these. And then we're going to go back and we're just kind of tear it apart a little bit. And we're going to look at some different things. And hopefully we're going to uh, discover some things maybe that you haven't seen before. But if you pick it up in chapter 7, verse 53 of John's gospel, it says this. And I'm reading out of the NIV for those of you that are, have your own copy tonight. 
Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a a basis uh, for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to open up your word and to be able to read your word to mankind. God, I thank you that this passage of scripture was included so that we could understand yet another facet of your heart. So God, in the next few minutes that we're together, I pray that you would, Father, open our eyes that we may see. Father, open our hearts that we may hear what you would have us hear tonight about this scripture and how it applies both to the people at the time that heard it and us today. God, we thank you that your truth permeates all generations. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, at the time of this, Jesus, if you look at the first couple of passages just prior to this, as it fits in this story, and as we, most of us have it recorded in our scriptures, Jesus has been in the temple teaching. And in fact, he's just attended the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he's gotten up and said some very outlandish things, claiming to be the Messiah. And so then as he's teaching in the temple courts, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have kind of come and said, hey, he's claiming to be the Messiah, and, and that's not right because he isn't. He can't prove it. And so they even ask people, go and arrest him. Go bring him back in. And yet when the, when the temple guards and those that go before him, they get into his presence and they stop for a moment. You'll, you can read it if you back up a little bit. And they sit there and they listen to him for a minute. And his words catch their heart. And they can't arrest him. They can't barge in and say, I need to take you back. You're in violation of Mosaic law. And the, you know, we need to bring you before the, the government. And, and they come back empty handed. And then the Pharisees say, what, what are you doing? Where, where is he? We told you to go arrest him. And in fact, if you, if you look back there, it says in verse 50 of chapter 7, it says Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So what they're saying is, okay, We don't care who he says he is. Even if he thinks he can prove that he's Messiah, the prophet doesn't come out of Galilee. We know the scriptures. We know the ancient text. We know the Mosaic law. We know the prophecies of the Messiah. So this can't be him. So you need to go arrest him. So that when we pick up in our story, there's a very interesting twist that we read. The very first verse, verse 53, it says, they each went, then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And so the people that are accusing Jesus here, the people that are sitting and listening to him that want to hear him, as well as those that are coming against him, trying to prove that he is not the Messiah, they are rising up against his teaching. At the end of the day, they each had their own home to go to. 
They each could go lay down their head on their own beds and say, well, a day's done and we'll get up and handle tomorrow. But Jesus doesn't have a home to go to. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that they're coming after to teach, to hear his teachings in the, in the temple courts. And yet, he has to go to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you read the events of Jesus' life, that's one of his favorite places to go. And in fact, those of you that you, you can get closer to God, that if you go to Olive Garden, because that's what he did, um, was go to Olive Garden, one of my favorite things. Um, the breadsticks are amazing. I don't know that they had them back then, but when Jesus went to the Olive Garden, he, he found solace there. He, that was his place of rest. See, they each went to their own homes. And Jesus went to the place where he felt most at home. And that was the Mount of Olives. That was where he connected with God the Father. And so at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, if you read his life, he starts out his day many days at the Mount of Olives, or he'll retreat there for a time of solace and a time of quietness and a time of worship of his God and connecting in prayer. So he retired. Jesus obviously knew what was coming the next day. He's already rubbed up against them a, a wrong, the wrong way, according to them. He knew his teaching would, would divide a household. He knew that he would come to die, and so he goes back to the Mount of Olives, and he spends the night there. So the next day we wake up and, it's, and, and we read in, in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 2. It's kind of like back to the classroom, so to speak. And it says here that at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So if you're familiar with the layout of the temple in the temple court, the temple court surrounded the temple itself. And quite often there would be a teacher of the scriptures. There would be somebody out there that has the authority to teach and they would have followers and disciples and they would just kind of gather around and sit down and they would discuss the scriptures. And so Jesus, he sits down the next day and it's back, back, to, back to normal. We're going to sit down and we're going to teach the scriptures. And there's people, and, and, and as you can imagine, there's, there's those that are thirsty and longing for his teaching and find some comfort in his words and, and find something different about him. And, and they're sitting there and they're enjoying church. They're enjoying Jesus. They're enjoying hearing about what he has to say. And then you pick up in verse 3 and it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, get the moment. Get Picture this. Jesus, it even says he's sitting down. So he's sitting on the steps there or somewhere outside. People are, you know, flocking around him. They're all sitting on the ground and he's teaching them. He's exhorting them in scripture and, and, and what God says and, and, you know, telling them about, about who he is and how much God loves them. And in comes the teachers. In comes the Pharisees, those that are highly esteemed in the religious order. And they just blaze right in. They interrupt, they rudely disrupt the Messiah. Try not to do that, it's kind of bad. Uh, so they rudely interrupt the Messiah and they come blowing in with their own agenda. They interrupt him mid-sentence, most likely, and say, uh, teacher, we've got a woman caught in adultery and so the Mosaic Law says this and what do you say and, and here's the deal. And, you know, that's where, of course, those that have the spiritual gift of sarcasm like myself would have been, and who are you again? Um, but Jesus didn't say that because Jesus was much kinder than I am. And, and, he, he's sitting there, but, but, but get this, he's having church with these people, and yet somebody rises up with their own agenda and marches right down front and says, I need you to notice me right now because I have a problem, and so you need to stop what you're doing, and you need to address my deal. Anybody know anybody like that? Don't, don't point, it's rude. Um, no, hopefully there's nobody like that in this room. But we know whole churches 
that have split, that have closed their doors. Because there's too many people like that that come and say, you know what, I, I realize that God's doing amazing work here, but you know, you need to put that on hold because I'm not happy and, and church is about me. And so I need this to happen. We, we, need to, we need to address my issue here. In fact, as we'll read in a moment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't care about the woman. If anything, it would have at least looked good on their part if they said, hey, she was caught in adultery. And wow, we really feel sorry for her because you know what Mosaic Law says and how can we help her? No, they blazed right in and said, so Jesus, what are you going to do now? And they kind of test him. They, they, they come in on their own agenda. They did not care anything about the dignity of the woman. They were laser focused, and I'll give them that. But their target was off. Oh, how many of us get laser focused and get passionate about something that we think might be justifiably right in the name of God, and yet our target is wrong. And why? Because our heart is wrong. These guys' heart was cold. Their heart was calloused. They had an agenda that was not on the surface. There was a hidden agenda to trip Jesus up. And think about this too, though. The Mosaic law, and we'll read it in a minute. The Mosaic law said that someone needs to be stoned for this. If you catch someone in adultery, they need to be stoned. Now, the obvious question is, where's the man? It didn't say if somebody's caught in adultery, you take that woman out and you stone her. The Mosaic law says you need to stone both of them. So where's the woman caught in adultery? And so that gets our mind thinking for a minute. Or excuse me, where's the man that was in the act with her? Okay, so how do do they qualify that? How how do they say that we have the woman and hopefully you won't ask about the man. I would have just loved for Jesus to say, and the man is, where is, is he one of you? Is it, you know, um, just, I just, we need to have both present and, but he didn't. I just kind of wished, why? I wish he'd have done that. But, um, But he didn't. He was graceful and, and he didn't ask them, but, but the truth is the man was supposed to suffer just as much as the woman had. You know, and I look at this, and the men of society of this, most of the time, most all the time, it was men that were in authority in the church, in this culture at this time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were men. And so they found this, this heinous crime, according to them, and they brought the woman. You ever wonder what would have happened if there was like a women's group that was in charge? And they found them. It's like, oh yeah, I don't know, the woman got escaped. But this guy, he, you know, I just wonder. It, 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 was it because of they were all men that they just brought the woman? You know, you have to wonder. You have to wonder why they didn't bring the man. It, it's, it's curious. It already tips their hand off. It might not to the uneducated on Mosaic law. But those that were knowledgeable of the law would have seen this and would have said, wait, there's already some grave errors that are happening here. So let's keep, let's keep reading here. Uh, they asked Jesus a question. Okay, verse 5. It says this, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? So in the law, Jesus, hey, here it is. You're loved by the people. You say you're the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Moses' law says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And they all kind of sit back. You can, you can see the, you know, the look on their faces going, I Got him now. Dude, 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 dude. You know, the old Jeopardy music comes on and you got only a little bit amount of time. Jesus, answer this for us. Let's read the Mosaic law. Let's you and I read it just for a second. It's back. It's found in a couple of different places. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If you want to flip back there real quick. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, 
with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Very clearly that there's not just one guilty party here. Oh, thank you very much. The water's not to Andy. He has the grace of many people. Mm. I don't know if they wanted you to do that because we could be here a long time now tonight. Um, I, I was teased at my last church as being the long-winded speaker guy. So uh, I, can, I, I, I love to teach the scriptures. Um, so you're in trouble now. Um, uh, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says that. Now also in Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 22 through 24 read this. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in in a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. So in all cases, the man is listed first. The man is to be brought to account. In this case, in Deuteronomy, is the only case where we see you must stone them to death. And so at best, if this one directly applies, then she was betrothed to another man. She was not married yet, but she was betrothed to another man. If we were to correctly apply what they claim is the scriptural law of the Mosaic law. And yet, in the rabbinical law, it also says that if there is a crime that needs to happen, that needs to be paid for, for death, for a stoning, for death. There has to be two or three witnesses to this crime, not just one. And so think about what has happened now. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they have brought this poor woman with no care for who she is. They've left the man conveniently out of the situation, already committed an error. At least two or three of them have to have watched this happen Can you imagine if you were living in fear of of committing a crime against the Mosaic law, you wouldn't just, hey, I'm going to go commit adultery and we're just, you know, not going to really cover up what's going to happen and hopefully I won't get caught. No, you would think that if she was truly in the act of adultery, she was probably trying to hide it. And so if they were going to discover this, they had to have been tipped off and or they had to have maybe even set it up. Now, one thing that I haven't found in any commentary, and I read about seven of them this week, is this question. The Mosaic law was given to the Israelites, was given to God's people. And in fact, when Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus, the Messiah, shows up, and then after he's gone and the apostles now go throughout the towns and the cities, and they then begin to evangelize Gentiles, it is an incredible violation of people's conscience because everything that was promised by God is, is only for God's people. It's only for the Jews. It's only for the Israelites. It's kind of like saying the modern day application of this is don't expect your non-believer to pay attention to this or act this way. What the Bible says. The Bible is for God's people. The Bible is for those people who have said, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and I want to live his way. And so often, I think, we in the world, we look at people who are not saved, as you might say, or have not entered into a relationship with Christ, and we get upset at them and we judge them for acting exactly the way they are. We say, well, the Bible says this, you're not supposed to do that. Well, that's for those that believe in the Bible. That's for those that believe in God. 
But you cannot expect someone who is a non-believer in Christ to act this way necessarily. They have to claim the relationship first. I was at Meet the Staff last night. And we do this every couple of months, and it was a great opportunity for us to meet some folks that had been coming here just for a short while. And one of the greatest things that I always appreciate Pastor Lynn saying when he says this, he says, basically, we have a way of doing church here that you'll see some things, you'll see people in the seats that a lot of them don't know Jesus. He calls them pre-Jesus. And then he makes this statement, he says, and some of them act like it. And that's okay, because they don't know him yet. And we love the fact that they're in the room. And that may even be some of you here in the room tonight at Meet the Staff. And we are glad you're here. We are not going to impose rules and restrictions and expectations from you. We want you to meet the Savior. And then let him do that. And so we don't even know here. We know we would assume that this woman is an Israelite. We would assume that she's there. caught in a dirty. Well, We don't know. She could be a Gentile. And so these laws almost wouldn't apply to her. All of this is speculation. So let's get back to the meat of it. But there are so many things in scriptures, as I know that you know every week when Jeff teaches, that there's so many highlights of, oh yeah, I didn't realize that. A lot of these are things to think about. And so I just kind of want to skip along the surface of those. The thing we have to be careful about when we carve up scriptures, not read too much into it. We need to get the text out and the meaning of it. And this one, as Jason sung just a few minutes ago, is one of grace. And so let's keep going. The underlying truth here is in verse, the first part of verse 6. And it says this, They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So they put it before him and they said, the truth, here's, the honest, here's the honest truth. They didn't care about her. They didn't even do it right. They quoted some Mosaic law and didn't even quote it correctly. And then they said, what do you do? And so in the last half of verse 6, it says, then Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, instead of sentencing her to death and saying, absolutely, Mosaic law says kill her, which would have, what, what would have done? That would have scared Every other sinner that had been listening to Jesus, it would have scared them all to death and said, oh, wow, I need to just cover up my sin again. I don't need to come for grace and forgiveness. I could lose my life. Now I'm scared and I'm crawling back into this protective hole. So he, he didn't do that, but he also didn't say Moses' law is no longer valid because then he would have undermined all of Mosaic law. He would have undermined the Jewish faith. He would have undermined everything that his lineage that he came from. So he's kind of in a, in a hard place here. Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground. Now, oh, I wish I would have been there. I want to see what he writes on the ground. It's our only account of Jesus ever writing anything. Jesus stoops down. They ask him a hard question. Everybody's now startled. They've, they think they've got him cornered, and he just... And he starts to write on the ground. Can you imagine what went through these guys' heads? In fact, there are some scholars that, that, that there's at least two manuscripts that have been found that are from about 989 A.D. or so that actually say he began to write the sins of those that were accusing her. Now, that, there's only about two manuscripts that say that, so we think maybe a scribe put that in there, but it's at least worth considering. There's another interesting passage of prophecy that's also worth considering that I discovered this week, and this made my week. If, you, if this has bored you so far, please take note of this. You, will, you can use this at parties. This is amazing. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Jeremiah, his prophecy for an unrepentant people. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. 
The word dust there is the Hebrew word for ground. It is the equivalent of the same word that John uses to describe that Jesus began to write in the dust of the ground. You have to wonder. Now, you can't stay here long, but you have to wonder if Jesus in his own mind says, oh, you're such an expert in the law. Let's see if this rings up any bells. And he starts to write in the ground. There is, there is sarcasm in the scripture. I love it. I really have to dig for it, but it's there. And, and Jesus just begins to write in the ground. Now, the interesting thing about this statement, it says that their names in Jeremiah, it says their names will be written in the dust, the earth. But the word is translated dust. Dust is dry. Dust is without life. And then it says, for they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. It doesn't say that they'll be written in the mud. It says that they're written in the dust because they are without life. Jesus starts to write on the ground. And yet they still don't get it. They still press their agenda. He's given them the opportunity to say, wait, may, are we wrong here? And still they don't concede. They don't back down. So here's verse 7. Here's the rebuttal. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, why did he say that? I'm thinking right off the bat, that guy is good. He's Jesus. I hope he is. But that, wow, I wouldn't have even thought to say that. But there's even a deeper meaning to that. If you look back in Deuteronomy, again, this is another test. You've got to see that everything Jesus says in this is, oh, since you brought up the Mosaic law, let's get it out. And he says in, De- in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter, where is it, 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, we won't read it here, verses 2 through 6. You can kind of mark that on the side. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 6, basically says that the witnesses of an act or a crime against God, and it lists specifically there someone who is worshiping another God instead of God, the witnesses thereof have to, are required to, pick up the first stones and throw them at her. It's the witnesses that saw the crime. And so Jesus says, okay, you that witnessed it, you that are so bent on getting justice here, may one of you, without any sin in his life, cast the first stone in her direction, and we'll go there. Immediately, immediately the crowd freezes. I mean, get the moment. Jesus, he's not lashed out at them. He's not raised his voice. You know, there's a certain time where I, where I get in the middle of this passage and I just like, Jesus, I mean, the temple, I saw, I read, you, you know, you wove a whip and boom, you know, I mean, it was Indiana Jones and we are, we are, we are cleaning house because there was a violation of the temple. You were turning it into a den of thieves and he said, you know what, no more. And I really wish he kind of would have got out the little whip and said, no, but he didn't. He was very kind. And he's very subtle, very humble, but incredibly direct and incredibly on point. And he says, go ahead, cast the first stone. And how many scriptures do we read in our text about before you pluck the splinter out of somebody else's eye, may you take the plank out of your own. For what you judge with will be judged against you. Treat others as you would have them treat you. It was the truth of who Jesus was. When Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets, he says, love God and love others. Done. No need to carry around the big book anymore. That's all. That sums up the law and the prophets. You must love people. And he's pointing out to them, you don't love her at all, yet you're the teacher of the law. 
You're the esteemed. You're the people. You're the people that the whole common folk look to to be the voice of God, and you totally miss it. Yet he was still kind. And here's what I call an opportunity of grace. Verse eight. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. See, Jesus at this point has given them every clue that they're wrong. Yet he's not called them out and embarrassed them in public. He's given them every clue and said, hey, you really don't want to go there because you've got the wrong idea. And so he stoops down and bends on the ground again and starts writing. What I picture here is Jesus saying, I will afford you the opportunity to sleek away in silence without me seeing who's leaving so that I will not embarrass you. Can you imagine? Jesus knows that he's about to be killed by their very hands. He knows that not long he will hang on a cross and die. And yet even in that cross where he's hanging there, he says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. This same Jesus looked at them and said, I'm just going to go back to my little drawing on the ground here. I was in the middle of tic-tac-toe and I'm not finished. So I'm just, cat's game. Oh no, I've got to do this one over here. You know, and, and, and he's getting back to saying, I'm not going to focus on you. I will let you leave so that you are not embarrassed to have me watch you go away. Or have me watch you fail at not throwing the first stone like you are supposed to do. It's an opportunity of grace. And yet the greater truth is realized in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He gave them the opportunity to say, wow, Jesus, I'm wrong. I'm really wrong. You're right. Gosh, please forgive us. Go on about your teaching. We're sorry. And none of them take it. And every one of them, the older ones first, I have to wonder, the older ones, they were probably more wise. They were more seasoned. They could recognize when something wasn't right quicker than the younger, more ignorant ones of them. And so they immediately stepped back and went, oh, this is not going to be good. (laughs) I think I need to leave before anybody sees me here. And then the younger ones look up and say, oh, great. You let us into this and now you leave us. And they sleeped away too. And then here's the most important question of all. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Isn't it just like Jesus to take someone who is guilty of such, at this time considered just such a horrible crime of adultery, and he created a venue so that she could stand and not be condemned? Isn't that what Jesus did with the cross? Isn't that what Jesus did and what we hope to create here at a church led by the Holy Spirit? That when you come through these doors, it doesn't matter if you've just come from adultery. It doesn't matter if you're still hung up on that. It doesn't matter what sins you carry into this, into this place. We are not going to judge you. We are not going to throw a stone at you. We're going to hand you a Bible and we're going to tell you, we're going to find the page for you. We're going to say, come worship with us. And hopefully, hopefully one day you can know the Savior for yourself. That's the perfect model of a church if I've ever seen it. Jesus asks just a few words out of my mouth and man, magically there's no one here to condemn you. That to me tells me that in the presence of Jesus, there is no condemnation. 
Maybe that's a test that we need to complete, complete on a daily or a weekly basis in our own lives. Is there condemnation from me of anyone? Well, in this passage, when condemnation cleared out, there's when Jesus spoke truth. And when Jesus got to the meat and potatoes of it, there was no condemnation left. So if you want to be at the heart of Jesus, condemnation does not belong there. The response, verse 11. No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there now is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus looks at her and says, no one else is here, but neither do I. That is such a difficult truth for us to grab onto. Both in our own lives and in the lives of those around us that we see guilty of sin. It is so hard for us to say, but God, I'm trying to do all this right. But there's this person in the same pew, in the same row of purple seats on a Sunday that I know they're tangled up in sin. Yet they're just gleaming. They're just beaming. They're just right there. How come? How come? How come? I want to be in condemnation over that. That's the sin inside of us saying life's not fair. And yet Jesus says, you know what? Leave it to me. It's up to me to condemn anyway. And let's look at your life for a minute. Let the first one without sin cast the first stone. Are you sure you really want to bring that one to me? Are you sure you really want to bring that as a prayer request? That why her, why him? Let's do a personal inventory for a minute. And let's get humble. And let me take care of them. Because I promise you, when we stand before God one day, he's not going to say, oh, it's okay, but compared to her, you're in. Thank the Lord, because compared to Billy Graham, ooh, I don't know, could you get back in line in a little while? If we got any room left, we'll let you in. Uh, Life is not a comparison. The only one he will compare us to is Jesus. And of our own, we fail. But then is when Jesus says, is there no one to condemn you? And the fact that you've accepted me, neither do I. Ever. And the greatest, the greatest thing I think he has ever said. He had an opportunity of grace for those that accused her before. But now here's the offer. It's on the table. And he says... He says in verse 11, the last part of it, go now and leave your life of sin. That's it. I don't condemn you. I'm not going to brand you for your past, which is what they were trying to do. I'm not going to drag you in front of people and say, yeah, but look at the track record. I'm going to stand you before men and say, what can it be? What can the future hold? Go and sin no more. In my name, what can we do together? Do you trust in me? I don't condemn you, but I save you. Now what? So many of us, we don't get that we're not supposed to carry our sins. A lot of us will get on our knees daily and we'll say, God, forgive me. And yet we won't forgive ourselves. That's the number one thing that Satan gets into us. If you ever feel accused with a finger pointing at you, understand that's not God. That's Satan. He's the accuser. Jesus is the one full of grace. He's putting his arms out. He's not pointing a finger at. So many of us are meant to put these down and yet we carry it into tomorrow and wonder why we can't accomplish more for Christ. There's a story and I'll let you go. Well, we've got one more announcement for you at the end and I'll let you go. I was in a um, Tallahassee airport. And I was trying to catch a plane and 
the plane broke and I couldn't get back to Tampa. It was about a four-hour drive by car. And they said, by the way, your plane is not going to be repaired this evening and we don't have another one for you, thank you very much. So you're going to have to spend the night in Tallahassee or you're going to have to go home uh, tomorrow. And I was so upset. And so, because I, I wanted to get back, I had a new family and, and I, you know, I had, we just had our first child and I really wanted to get back. I was up there in business and we all ran the whole plane. It was one of those little, you know, ones with the glue still drying on the wings and there's like 12 of us in it. And so we all ran to the rental car places and we all lined up. It's like, oh, where's an empty one? You know, and I'll go there. Nobody had any cars. And yet about 45 minutes later, I found a car just prior to finding that It was a man that was on the plane, and he and I kind of were just sitting there making small talk. And he says, hey, um, if you find a car, I really want to get back to Tampa tonight, too, and and I'll split the cost with you. If you find one, I'm going to, you know, here's my name, here's my cell number, you know, call me. I'll be glad to do that for you. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, that's a great idea. And I walked away going, you know what? I just don't want to do that. I'm just a rude person right now, and I don't want to do that. And I found a car. I didn't call him. And I drove back to Tampa for four hours alone. All the way going, oh no. Carrying the guilt of this little voice inside me saying, man, he probably wasn't a believer. And you had a captive audience at 70 miles an hour for four hours. If he wanted to get away from the gospel, he'd had a jump. (laughs) You could have shared me with him. And I'm thinking, oh no, what did I do? I was taking a class through Liberty University online through their um, religion department and the guy that was teaching my video course had long since retired. It was recorded several years before and I'm thinking, God, what do I do? I can't get rid of this guilt of not, of not sharing Christ with this guy. And so I jumped on AOL Buddy. You know, this is dating myself a little bit. And so I'm looking up there and I'm thinking, I just typed the guy's name and he's retired. Not only did he have an AOL account, he was online in Texas. And I'm looking at my screen going, oh, you just spoke to me out loud, God. And I clicked on there and I said, are you the retired guy? And he was like, yeah, that's me. What's up? What's your name? How's it going? What you need? I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Okay, here's the deal. I was in Tallahassee, you know, and I was taking a course from him. And he was talking about getting rid of guilt and laying it at Jesus' feet and not carrying it into tomorrow. And I said, here's what I did. What do I do? I'm freaking out. And he said, did you ask Christ for forgiveness? And I said, yes. And he said, then go to bed. (laughs) I was like, really? Yeah, I tried that. I couldn't sleep. And I told him, I said, but that's so easy. And he said, yeah, that's the grace of God. If you choose to accept it, because you'll be no good to him tomorrow, carrying around the mistakes of yesterday. He's forgiven you. Go ye therefore and sin no more. I'm going to strand you in Tallahassee in six months. Don't do it again. <laughs> That's what he says to us. Learn from that, but understand that there's, a more op- there's more opportunities in tomorrow. Don't be the one that says, yeah, I'm the man, I can do it. And the only time those words are used in Scripture is when Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. And David says, oh my goodness, what did I do? What did I do? Let's not be boasters and braggers of who we are, but let's go 
like this woman stood before Jesus and he listened to Jesus' words and say, I'm sorry, I'll go and sin no more. Hey, thanks for letting me be here tonight. I enjoyed it very much.